If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to to John chapter 4. So we look at the end of John chapter 4 this morning, verses 43 through 54. John writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This, again, is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, as we consider these few verses this morning, first of all, we'll, we'll walk through the text and try to see and observe what is, what is going on here. And then, as we, as we consider these verses, we'll, we'll do so under two main points. First of all, the benefits of suffering. And secondly, take Jesus at his word. So the two main points... The benefits of suffering, take Jesus at his word. First of all, the text, though, the verses before us pick up after Jesus had spent those, those few days in the town of Sychar in Samaria. Chapter 4 had opened with Jesus in Judea and leaving Judea, heading back to Galilee. And most of this chapter has been focused on that favorable interaction that Jesus had had with the Samaritan woman and then the, the rest of the people of that village of Sychar there in Samaria. Up in verse 40, they had asked him to stay with them. He had stayed on for two days. And now, here, those two days are up, and Jesus and the disciples leave Samaria, still en route to Galilee. And we're told that when Jesus comes to Galilee, the Galileans receive him on the basis of his miracles. They had seen the miracles that Jesus had done in Jerusalem during the Passover, as was recorded back in chapter 2, verse 23. Now, I think there's something very subtle that is going on here that's instructive for us to observe. I think we ought to notice the difference in the reception that Jesus received in Galilee as compared to the reception that he had received back in Samaria earlier on in the chapter. The Galileans here receive him on the basis of the miracles that they saw in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, who, again, are viewed by the Jews as essentially renegade heretics, 
had received Jesus not on the basis of his miracles, but on the basis of his teaching. Look back to verse 41. Many more believed because of his word. That was, that was the Samaritan reaction to Jesus. They believed because of his word. In other words, there's something deeper and more substantial going on in the hearts of the Samaritans as a whole than there was as a whole with the Galileans. And some of the Galileans, it seems, would not even receive Jesus on the basis of his miracles. We see Jesus' testimony in verse 44 that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And saying that, he probably has a specific eye toward his own hometown of Nazareth. And he certainly did speak that way during his visit to Nazareth, as we saw earlier in our unison reading, Mark chapter 6. Some of the Galileans, it seems, received him. Others, it seems, did not. And so Jesus comes into Galilee, specifically verse 46, comes to Cana, the place where that first miracle had taken place, the wedding, back in chapter 2. And there at Cana is this royal official. Most likely this is a Jewish man who worked in the court of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is also known as Herod the Tetrarch, who ruled Galilee and the region east of the Jordan River, known as Perea, from roughly 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. He shows up as the, the Herod before whom Jesus appeared on the night before his crucifixion in Luke 23. And this Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, who was Herod the king when Jesus was born. And so there were many more Herods than these two. This was, a, this was a family name, and apparently the family liked to use it quite frequently. And so we have here this, this royal official here in Cana. His son is sick at Capernaum. And somehow or another, this man hears that Jesus is in the area. Somehow he knows that Jesus can perform miracles. It seems, seems likely that he knew this on the basis of the stories that he had heard and of the public knowledge that existed about Jesus as being a healer. He probably himself was not an eyewitness of some of those miracles that Jesus had performed. He just knows that Jesus has the power to do miracles. He's really worried about his son. His son is sick, so much so that in verse 47 we see that he's at the point of death. So this man is desperate. He wants help for his son. Who wouldn't be desperate? Who wouldn't want help for their son in a situation like that? And so he goes to the one man that he thinks can help him. He wants Jesus to help him. So he goes to Jesus, implores Jesus to come down and heal his son. And notice the, notice the pushback. Jesus pushes back a little bit. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And in saying that, he places this royal official in the same boat as the, the rest of the Galileans generally. He says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now on the one hand, Jesus' miracles were supposed to be pointing people to him. The miracles were for the purpose of validating his teaching and his authority. And we, we see this clearly in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Just to give one example of this, think of the, the healing of that, that paralytic. In, uh, it's related by Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 or in Mark chapter 3 or Luke chapter 5. That man's friends tried to bring him to Jesus but couldn't because of the crowd. And so they, they went up on the roof, dug a hole in the roof, and lowered him down on the stretcher. And when Jesus sees their faith, he says to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And there's some naysayers there in the crowd who are saying to themselves, Who can forgive sins except God alone? 
And Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows their hearts. And he says, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up your pallet and go home. The miracle that was performed there pointed to the spiritual authority of Jesus as God. He who can heal a paralytic with a word in his own power is none other than God. And certainly God has the power to forgive sins. In other words, the miracle you can see was pointing to Jesus' authority. The people were supposed to see that miracle and then to recognize that Jesus indeed is the divine Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. Similarly, Jesus said to Philip, John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Again, the works, the miracles, were pointing to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. That much is certainly true. But at the same time, as one writer wisely pointed out, too much interest in the raw miracles themselves is spiritually dangerous. In other words, seeing the miracles did not always lead to saving faith. Some people just wanted to see the miracles kind of the way a child wants to see a magic show. They want to, they want to see something and be amused and entertained and intrigued by it. We saw back at the end of chapter 2 how seeing the miracles had led some to a superficial faith. And we see later on in the Gospel of John that seeing miracles does not even always lead that far. It doesn't always even lead to a superficial faith. And so after Lazarus was raised from the dead in John 11, we're told that therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. And so some believed. You had others who saw. And they believed that Lazarus got out of the grave. They could certainly see that, but they didn't believe in Jesus. And so they, they go to the Uh, the Pharisees and tell them what Jesus had done. And then it's at that point that the Pharisees and the chief priests convene a council and they say, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And so the miracles are a tricky thing. Seeing the miracles on the one hand could and did, in some cases, lead to saving faith. This is not always the case. Seeing is not always believing. And these Galileans, in general, were not content with the signs that they had already seen. They, they kept on wanting more. They wanted to, to see more. As Calvin put it, Christ saw that his doctrine had no great authority and was not only neglected, but altogether despised. And on the other hand, that all had their eyes fixed on miracles and that their whole senses were seized with stupidity rather than admiration. And so I, I think also in the response that Jesus gives to the nobleman here when he, when he pushes back on him, that Jesus in a way is trying to stir up his faith and trying to, to draw this man's faith out from him, to, to draw him on to a greater exercising of faith. And in this respect, I think there is perhaps some similarity between the way that Jesus spoke to this man and the way that Jesus spoke to the, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, you remember the Syrophoenician woman was, was a Gentile. She came to Jesus begging that he would cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. 
And Jesus sometimes speaks in such a way to test people who approached him and to draw out their faith in him, to, to lead them on to a greater exercise of faith in him. And it seems that that is exactly what happened here. This man came to Jesus for help. He was not put off. He was not deterred by what Jesus said about Galileans needing to, to see miracles in order to believe. He wasn't, he wasn't rebuffed by that at all. This royal official has a one-track mind. And he goes to Jesus and he says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He, Jesus pushes back and he pushes right on into Jesus. And notice what happened in verse 50. This is the turning point. Jesus heals the boy at a distance. He said to the official simply, Go, your son lives. And the official took Jesus at his word. We see it explicitly there in the text. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and started off. In other words, this man proved that he was not like the rest of the Galileans. He didn't need to see signs in order to believe. He simply believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He hadn't seen the miracle, but he took Jesus at his word that a miracle had been performed, that his son would indeed live. This man proved himself, in other words, to be like the Samaritans of Sychar who believed because of his word and did not need to see signs in order to believe. Such a man as this is truly blessed, as Jesus would say to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And in taking Jesus at his word, this man started off down the road toward home, and in so doing, his faith was confirmed and strengthened. How so? Because as he's on the way home, his slaves meet him and tell him that his son was living, his son is better. And they compare notes as to when it was that the son started to get better. And sure enough, it's right at the time when Jesus told him, your son lives. And then we read in verse 53 that he himself believed and his whole household. Now let's, let's notice here, first of all, the benefits of suffering. Suffering, by definition, is unpleasant. Nobody wants to suffer. In the passage before us, we read of actually two people who were suffering. The most obvious would be the son of this royal official. He's sick, so much so that he is near death. Obviously, the, the boy or the young man is suffering. But there's another person who was suffering here, and that would be the father. He wasn't suffering in the physical sense of sickness, facing an imminent death. But nevertheless, he was suffering. He was suffering the mental and emotional turmoil of watching his son decline toward death. Death itself is unnatural. There was no death in creation originally. Death is introduced as part of the curse, part of the fall because of sin. Death is a terrible reality and an enemy. But there's even something more than that that's going on here. Death itself is unnatural, but nevertheless we've accepted its existence as part of the fall. But here death acts even more unnaturally in that it is seeking to claim, in this case, the life of the younger generation before the older generation had passed from the scene. Though this father is not enduring sickness and pain, nevertheless he is suffering. But yet look how in both cases the suffering was overruled for good by God. We have no idea how this nobleman first heard about Jesus or what preconceived notions he may have had or not had when he first went to meet Jesus. We don't know. But what we do know is that this man had heard about Jesus and in his desperation he went to him 
And whatever weakness of faith or whatever confusion and uncertainty were mixed up in his heart and his mind when he went to Jesus, nevertheless, he did go to Jesus. He went to Jesus. And not only did this man go to Jesus in the belief that Jesus could help him, he went away from Jesus, taking Jesus at his word. His faith was strengthened when he heard the report from his slaves. And we also find that his whole household believed. Right? This would include the boy or the young man who was close to death. His sickness, in other words, is used by God to bring him and his entire family to believe in Jesus. God uses sufferings for his purpose. And sometimes that purpose is to draw people to himself. I think the language of the Book of Common Prayer is instructive in this point when in its office for the visitation of the sick, it says, Whatsoever your sickness is, know certainly that it is God's visitation. And for what cause soever the sickness is sent unto you, whether it be to try your patience, for the example of others, and that your faith may be found in the day of the Lord, laudable, glorious, and honorable, to the increase of glory and endless felicity, or else it be sent to you to correct and amend in you whatsoever doth offend in the eyes of your heavenly Father. Know you certainly that if you truly repent of your sins and bear your sickness patiently, trusting in God's mercy for his dear Son Jesus Christ's sake, and render to him humble thanks for this fatherly visitation, submitting yourself wholly unto his will, it shall turn to your profit and help you forward in the right way that leadeth to everlasting life. In other words, if we use our sickness and suffering rightly, it will lead us on to Christ and to everlasting life. And that's what happened here for this official and for his son. Now may God grant to us as well that this would be what happens to each and every one of us, that we would use our suffering and the opportunity that it presents to us as an opportunity to draw near to the Lord. When suffering comes, and it will come to all of us in one way or another, we're going to have to deal with it somehow, some way or another. When the young loved one unexpectedly comes down with a severe sickness, how are you going to respond? When someone unexpectedly dies of disease or in an accident, how are you going to respond? When you yourself are suffering sickness, whether you are anticipating death for yourself or whether you're simply just enduring suffering until your body can be well again, how are you going to respond to that? When you lose your job, how are you going to respond? When a loved one proves unfaithful, how are you going to respond? When you suffer because of your stance upon the word of God or for the sake of righteousness, how are you going to respond to that? All of these things are opportunities. Opportunities for us to do one of two things at least. Either to become bitter and angry towards God, or else to press into God and seek His grace and help in a new and fresh way under the trying circumstances of our suffering. In other words, these situations present us the opportunity either to imitate Job's wife or to imitate Job. We have the opportunity in these times to imitate Job's wife who said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. We have the opportunity to imitate Job, who said, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? 
Now, the path of Job's wife is that of bitterness and anger. And it might seem to be the path of least resistance. It might seem to be the easiest and the most natural. When something bad happens, we like to find a culprit on whom to pin the blame. Someone on whom we can pin things. And again, from the perspective of the flesh, who better to pin the blame on than God? God is omnipotent, he's sovereign, he's in control of, any, of everything. He could have prevented X, he could have prevented Y, he could have prevented Z. He obviously chose not to prevent X, Y, and Z. And now this is the result. I'm suffering this way, whatever it is, let's blame God, let's be bitter at him. Now what we need to do is examine this line of thinking. The statements in this line of thinking are somewhat true. God obviously certainly is omnipotent, sovereign, and in control. He could have prevented anything and everything that he wanted to prevent. He chose not to, in this case, whatever it is. But from these statements, it's completely illegitimate that we should conclude that the right thing to do is to become angry with God. And this is because there are some important truths that are conveniently left out of that equation, that equation that is thought to add up to a righteous indignation against God. Not taken into account in that equation is the fact that we are sinners. The fact that God disciplines us for our own good as he sees fit. And the fact that God knows more what you and I need than we know. We might think we know what we need. God actually knows what we need. As the Huguenot pastor Jean Dale expressed it, if in the circumstances of your life or in those of your brethren something should occur, the reason of which you do not perceive, remember that though you may be ignorant of it, you are not on that account to say that there is none. Allow that God is wiser than you and that there is something in his ways which is above your comprehension. God is the one who knows ultimately what we need. God knows what others need. We might think that we know such things, but ultimately we do not. We have to trust God in this regard and seek to improve our sufferings and, and capitalize on them, so to speak, by drawing near in those times, drawing near to Christ in faith. And that's what this royal official did. He drew near to Christ in his suffering, as he was suffering on account of the sickness of his son, and he learned to trust Christ through it all. And we must learn to do the same. May we learn to say with the psalmist, Psalm 119.71, It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And may we learn to think and act as Paul did when he said in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We have sufferings here in this life. There's also comfort, comfort that comes through Christ. And we, as those who have received comfort in Christ, ought to be those who are dispensing comfort to others who are also suffering. And this brings us then to our second point of application, which is take Jesus at his word. This royal official, as we've seen, set himself off from the vast majority of the Galileans. Jesus said here that the people of Galilee would never believe unless they saw signs. And indeed, according to verse 45, that's 
why he was received when he came into Galilee. They received him on the basis of these signs that they had seen him perform in Jerusalem. And we can even go further than this, that ultimately, by and large, these people in Galilee did not believe. They might have received him, but they did not truly believe, even though they did see the miracles. This, by and large, this is the case. We find in Matthew 11 and Luke chapter 10 that Jesus reserved some of his strongest criticisms for places in Galilee which saw his works and his miracles and yet did not turn to him in repentance and faith. And so Matthew 11, uh, verse 20, we find that he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And so he denounces Chorazin and Bethsaida. He speaks of Capernaum and says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. By and large, the Galileans were such that they would not even believe when they saw the miracles. They liked it when Jesus did them, but nevertheless, Jesus was a prophet without honor in Nazareth and maybe even larger swaths of Galilee. But there was some, there were some, including this royal official among them, who took Jesus at his word, believed the word of Jesus, and then acted in accordance with their faith. And notice, notice what happened. This man did in fact receive the blessing which Jesus told him was his. The healing that he had sought for his son did occur. And as a result, his faith was strengthened. He trusted Jesus when Jesus told him that his son would live, but we find down below in verse 40, or in verse 53 that he himself believed. His faith in Christ was strengthened. He had trusted Christ's word already, and then Christ's word was confirmed by the actual fact that now his son was alive. One writer observed in regard to this official that there was a beginning of faith in this man when he first came to Christ. There was an increase when our Lord told him that his son lived, and a perfection when he found him to have recovered at that very time. Now, I think it's difficult to say precisely when this man came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He certainly believed that Jesus could do miracles when he first went to him. He believed Jesus' word when he departed from him. And certainly he seems to have believed that Jesus was the Messiah by the time that we get down to verse 53. At any rate, what is certainly beyond doubt is that this man took Jesus at his word and was not disappointed. The facts were found to bear themselves out just as Jesus had said. Now, allow this to be an encouragement to you if you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You who have believed his word and have responded in faith without having yet seen the fulfillment of what was promised. In a sense, we as believers are living somewhere between verse 50 and verse 53 of this passage. We've believed the word which Jesus spoke, yet we have not received the fullness of what has been promised to us. Obviously, as believers, we've tasted and seen by personal experience that the Lord is good. We know the joy of the forgiveness of sins. We know what it is to have hearts that have been set free from the slavery of sin. And so on. And we have the, the down payment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. But even still, with all of that being true, 
Here in this world, we still walk by faith and not by sight. We still say, Lord, haste the day when the faith will be sight. We are still, as we find in 1 Peter 1.13, still to be fixing our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've believed Christ and have received salvation. We are saved but nevertheless, there's still, still more to come. There's grace that is to be brought to us when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus comes again. We are looking forward to seeing Christ face to face. We're looking forward to the redemption of our bodies, to the resurrection uh, that we will receive from the dead and so on. We have believed by grace, but there is still much more that is awaiting us. In other words, we're still somewhere between verse 50 and 53. We take Jesus at his word, but we're... we're still awaiting the final confirmation, the final reception of those blessings. And so, brothers and sisters, as you're waiting, take heart. You will not be disappointed. The trust which you have placed in Christ is not misplaced. You will find your experience to be like that of this Galilean nobleman. He took Jesus at his word, and he found it just as Jesus had said. Your experience will be the same. Though a multitude of voices will tell you otherwise and will tell you that Jesus cannot be trusted for whatever reason they may allege, you'll find that the word of Christ is true and you will never go astray by relying on him. You have looked to Christ in faith already. You have believed his word and so continue to do so. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful from beginning to end and he promises his people their full and final redemption. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Whatever hardships and difficulties may come, look to Christ, keep believing his word, and keep going. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then what this means is that you have not yet taken Jesus at his word. Be a Christian by definition is to be someone who believes in Jesus, someone who believes that Jesus is who he says, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. And so, friend, if you are here today and you have never yet taken Christ at his word, let today be the day for you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Believe his word. Come to him. He'll give you rest. Jesus said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Christ died on the cross and rose again so that sinners who deserve judgment can be saved. And all of us deserve that judgment. Those who believe in Christ will be saved. Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. My friend, Jesus offers you rest. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you eternal life. He offers you abundant life even now in this fallen world. So take Jesus at his word. Trust in him. Turn from your sins and believe today, and you will find him to be as good as his word, just like this nobleman here in John chapter 4. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we praise you for Christ and his, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, 
and his kindness and compassion, his love for the weak, his love for those who are at their wit's end. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our sufferings, that we would press into Christ, that we would not stumble because of the things which we suffer here in this world, but that in all things we would keep on going, keep on trusting in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We would believe your word and continue clinging to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.